1: Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies, I'm your host Nicholas Walton. In every programme we talk about a new book that looks at some aspect of Europe and hear from the author. In this episode, that book is Britain's War Machine, weapons, resources and experts in the Second World War. And the author is David Edgerton. It's one of those books that provokes you as soon as you pick it up and forces you to read on. It also raises interesting questions about how Britain remembers that crucial moment in its history when it stood seemingly alone against Nazi Germany. Here's the interview. Well, joining me here in Westminster today is David Edgerton, the author of uh, Britain's War Machine, which is a a book that I found provocative from the very start because it made me rethink quite a few of the things that I'd thought about the Second World War and how that actually fitted into British history. Uh, You know, what kind of country Britain was then and and how it led to the post-war trajectory of Britain Uh, but before we actually concentrate on the book itself can you give us a a little bit about yourself you know uh, where you come from uh, and ultimately leading up to how you actually ended up writing this fascinating book.
0: Well let's go back 30 years, Uh, 1982, the Falklands War, I was uh, doing a PhD on the history of industrial policy in a context in which the left was arguing that we needed a a new kind of uh, uh, economic intervention, planning, people were looking back to the Second World War as a model of that, uh, of that planning. Curiously, I, I realized that uh, people were not concerned with the military. The military had been written out of the history of Britain at war. So when looked at the, the story of economic planning during the war, there were no soldiers, sailors or airmen in that. Uh, there was just civil industry. And that turned out to be true of most of British history. Britain was an anti-militarist nation. It uh, it was quite distinct from the militarist nations of of continental uh, Europe. The problem was indeed that uh, Britain hadn't been militaristic enough. It hadn't been uh, strong enough in armaments in the 1930s or in the 1920s. Um, It was pacifist. It was prone to um, get overexcited about uh, nuclear disarmament, all these things. And the left, as much as the right, I think, believed in these, in, these, uh, in these stories. So what, in effect, I did was to, to put, in my PhD, the history of British armed forces into the history of British industrial policy. And from that, I extended the story to uh, British research and development. Um, in effect, I wanted to uh, reshape our understanding of the, of the British state and its relation to industrial development and technological development. In the early 90s, I wrote a book called England and the Aeroplane, an essay on a militant and technological nation, which outlined a series of arguments uh, along those sorts of lines.
1: And uh, this particular book, what was the genesis of that?
0: Well, I I wrote um, uh, uh, quite a lot on on, uh, British militarism and British research and development, Uh, but mostly actually about the interwar years and the postwar years, and I realised I'd not dealt with the key period, the Second World War, I'd never written on Churchill, for example. I'd never written um, on, on the army, really, in, in, in fact. So I thought um, a nice way of, of bringing some arguments together uh, and, um, in, um, and uh, a nice way of, of making my, my arguments uh, reach a wider audience was to, was to see how they played out uh, in the period of the Second World War.
1: And the thesis of this book, uh, it, it's difficult for me to pin down, but uh, some of the ideas I picked up out of the book uh, were that uh, despite the post-war narrative, uh, that, uh, as, as you've just described it, Britain was actually, in many ways, it was very well prepared. Uh, it was well prepared in, in a, uh, also uh, conceptually. It understood what kind of country could fight a modern war in a way that, for instance, it, Germany you had mass armies, often a lot of horsepower, etc. Uh, and Britain actually understood the a war of machines and, and industry and trade and, and shipping and so on far better than, than we remember. And on top of that, um, Britain also... Far from standing alone, it actually was able to develop the war in a way that allowed it to fight it on its own terms. Uh, does that sum up a lot of the book? I mean, uh, there's yes, obviously it, a lot it, more it, uh, to it
0: than that. Well, yes, it, it, uh, it, it, it does. And uh, the essential idea is, I suppose, that Britain is a global power not a national power or European power or an imperial power but, but a country that depended on very particular relations with the rest of the of the world most of its food was Im- imported its raw materials uh, um, you call as it well.
1: a wor- world island
0: a world island it's not my term but I think it captures right. uh, w- w- what, it, what it was very well indeed uh, so Britain's bacon came from Denmark it's wheat from Argentina and Australia it's oil from the other side of the world and so on and so forth mm-hmm. and people understood that um, um, school children understood that uh, politicians understood that business people uh, uh, understood that, and they saw it as a great advantage uh, now there were worries that you could that uh, an enemy could cut off these lines of uh, supply, but on the other hand, Britain had the most powerful navy in the world to ensure that uh, that that wouldn 't happen now on the alone front um, we think of Britain being alone um, because we first of all because we uh, focused too much on a very particular period of the war, nineteen forty 1940 to nineteen forty-one. Of course, if you take nineteen thirty-nine to nineteen forty, not only was Britain not alone, but it was allied with uh, perhaps the greatest continental European power, France. Mm-hmm. Um, and that alliance was an extremely strong one. It extended to to munitions, to finance, uh, to, 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 to to science. It was it was a, a very very serious alliance uh, indeed. Now that uh, alliance was pulled apart by the defeat of um, France... In June 1940, but actually, uh, other countries, uh, much weaker and smaller countries, and defeated countries, came to be allied with uh, with with Britain as as a result. Mm-hmm. So one had uh, the Dutch government and the Dutch Empire uh, now part of uh, a, an allied war effort. The same with the Belgians, the Norwegians, and and so on. So even in terms of uh, of alliances, Britain uh, uh, wasn't uh, wasn't alone at this uh, at this time. And of course, economically, it was it it, it remained. Massively integrated into the into the world uh, economy, despite the loss of uh, some major trading partners in Scandinavia and in, uh, in Northwest Europe more more generally.
1: Now, now a lot of the counterfactual uh, kind of history that you can come across about the Second World War, uh, if ever it does deal with uh, with Britain really deeply getting into trouble when it's fighting Nazi Germany, a lot of it. Uh, a lot of those uh histories or counterfactual histories center upon uh britain because it's so linked into the rest of the world was in a position where it could be starved uh, you talk about uh, the great royal navy however uh, it did rely upon sea lanes uh, and and all of these histories sort of focus on that as the point of vulnerability
0: Oh, they do absolutely. Um, Is that and, correct? Uh, it, it was certainly uh, uh, a great, uh, uh, a great danger uh, to Britain as a potential uh, blockade by a, uh, an enemy. But uh, but Britain was prepared. Um, there was anti, there were anti-submarine devices. Uh, um, uh, well, uh, um, there, there was, in any case, a massive superiority over, over Germany in, in naval power. I mean, the, the greatest uh, danger to British naval power in Europe wasn't the German navy, it was the Italian navy. Mm-hmm. Um, that
1: did surprise uh, me when I started reading
0: about that. <laughs> One doesn't have to know much naval history to know that, but exactly, it's, uh, 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 but it is still surprising because we have this, this idea that, that, that Germany is strong in all fronts. It was extremely weak in, in, uh, in, in naval terms. Is
1: there any way that you could have conceived, looking back at, at uh, Britain really running into trouble, for instance, if uh, if the Germans had uh, put a lot more uh, resources into U-boat warfare or, or whatever?
0: Oh, yes. And in, in fact, uh, Britain did run into major troubles in 1940, uh, not because um, of the, the sinkings, although they were very significant in 1940-41, but because it's... Uh, um, uh, important sources of raw materials were taken over by the Germans. Not by not mm-hmm. they weren't affected by submarines, but affected by the German armies. So um, wood timber uh, paper from Scandinavia was was cut off materials for paper making from North Africa cut off uh, iron ore from Sweden via uh, Norway cut off iron mm-hmm. ore from North Africa uh, cut off and this is very very significant indeed because Britain either had to do without these raw materials or uh, ship them much greater distances and uh, uh, the, the increasing distances that ships had to had, had to travel were uh, was probably much more significant than u-boats in uh, in, in, in in reducing Britain's capacity to, to ship materials Materials. But um, Britain had a very large um, uh, merchant fleet, a merchant fleet that was added to by Norwegian, Danish, uh, Dutch, Greek uh, mm-hmm. shipping. So it had this extraordinary ability to continue to rely on the rest of the world. Now, there were very real um, uh, uh, threats by submarines. But in some crucial respects, that threat was over by 1941. At least Churchill thought so. In uh, 1942, there were many sinkings, but uh, a lot of American ships were, were involved. And uh, in any case... Um, it looked very likely that uh, that shipbuilding would increase very radically, as it, as, it, as it indeed did. So Britain's entire war effort was, was dependent on its ability uh, to import vast uh, quantities of material and indeed to, to send them over overseas in vast quantities as well.
1: Mm. Now, of course, so when you when you talk about the change in end of 1941 into 1942, you are bringing the United States in. Um, sorry to slip back into the kind of counterfactual history, which is, you know, it's always on the fringes, but it's quite fascinating. And uh, at one point in the book, you actually mention this question of whether Britain and the USSR alone without the United States, could have um, could have dealt with Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. And, of course, you bring in the wild card of Japan as well in, in the East. But uh, what are your thoughts?
0: Well, I think it... I'm sorry would for, have been, for asking
1: uh, you to speculate so much. Yes, but. yes.
0: But, um, I mean, at the end of 1941, uh, the British uh, were fighting the war in that way. Now, the Americans were giving economic support, and that would become very important uh, later on, but they weren't actually in the uh, in the war, and the British clearly thought they were going to win. Um, so it's, um, it's not simply a counterfactual. It's also what was happening at a, mm-hmm. at a, particular, at a particular moment. Now, what changes um, is that the British Empire in the east is attacked by the Japanese. And that has a profound effect on British power. Uh, suddenly, you've got to defend India. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to defend Australia and New Zealand. This, this is, the very, is a very, very major defeat for, for the British Empire and a very major weakening of its capacity to, to fight the war. I mean, it's not too difficult to see that um, Britain could have deployed uh, an Indian army in Europe. Mm-hmm. of a similar sort of size to the US army that uh, actually operated in uh, uh, in Europe. Now, after uh, December 1941, it's no longer able to, to do this. Mm-hmm. So my point is, is really this, that while a lot of people following Churchill kind of celebrated Pearl Harbor as a salvation for, for, for Britain, uh, the Americans were now fully on side. Actually, Pearl Harbor, but it wasn't just Pearl Harbor, it's also a simultaneous attack on Malaya, is a disaster for british power and at that moment you get a decisive shift in strength from the united states uh, from britain to the united states and indeed britain does become much more dependent than we've realized uh, on the u.s my point is it wasn't dependent nowhere near as dependent uh, before then mm-hmm. uh, the story in 1943 44, 45 is very different from the story 1940 1941
1: uh, you talk about towards the the earlier part of the war, um, Britain being militarily supported by the US, and then, uh, sorry, materially, and then that switches to this uh, military support towards the end of the, the war. And the material dependence upon um, the United States is, is especially clear when it comes to things like merchant shipping and, uh, and the new ships that the American dockyards are, are able to start putting out.
0: Yes, absolutely, but... Um That dependence uh, really comes in 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 uh, in nineteen forty three, forty four, and forty five. I mean, in in uh, in the early part of the war, the British merchant marine was much much larger than the U.S. merchant marine, and in fact, Britain was building many more uh, ships uh, than the United States was. it had so little capacity that, in fact, had to go to the united states to to, to build shipyards in the United States with mm. sterling uh, uh, so that it could acquire more ships so uh, in fact, the, the famous Liberty ships which transformed the world shipping fleet central to um, the Allied uh, war effort are based on a british design How the late by 1930s it by discussion of that. yes it 's uh, an extraordinary story now the, uh, people in the united states um, i don 't appreciate this There wasn 't much uh, much advertised, but this is a a, uh, a cheap and cheerful British tramp steamer mm-hmm. um, that, that uh, could be easily and cheaply built with uh, reciprocating steam engines, which was a very 19th century um, machinery. Mm, um, but it worked. But it, it worked. It worked
1: um to, to continue talking about all of the, the you know the, the nuts and bolts the equipment one thing that uh, i was surprised at when you were well one of the many things as is quite evident that i was surprised at when you talk about it is that uh, you seem to rate british tanks as uh, far better than most people i've ever read
0: oh yes there's a very long tradition of saying the british tanks were absolutely useless yes
1: unreliable um, uh, undergunned, et cetera, et
0: gunned, that underarmored um Um, unreliable in in all sorts of ways uh, that there weren't enough of them. Mm -hmm. But if one compares at a particular point and one compares like with like, uh, it's quite easy to establish, in fact, that the British army was uh, uh, more tank-intensive than the German army Mm -hmm. and the quality of of tanks was comparable. Mm -hmm. In some some periods, I think, slightly slightly better.
1: So where do we get this... uh... This
0: this idea from we get this idea from uh, 1940 and 1942, mm-hmm. where British analysts blamed a lack of numbers of tanks and um, poor quality of tanks for defeats in France, um, and then in in North Africa in 19 in 1942, and, it, and there was a particularly big parliamentary fuss in 1942 over over tanks. And, um, uh, those arguments entered the, um, the literature and have, and have stayed there. And, uh, um, it is. It is. Uh, I. I was very surprised that uh, that British tanks were really much better than than advertised in in the piles of literature that exist on this uh, on this mm. subject. Influential literature, indeed.
1: It's one of those uh, subjects that you often come across, or, or issues that you often come across, where where people's memories of the Second World War, you know, they're, they're dictated by lots of different things. Whether it's nationalism, particular instances that then resonated. Um, for instance, the. Uh, Everyone talks about the Wehrmacht being you know, almost superhuman, at least in the first part of the war, and yet beyond the, the strictly tactical level, they got so many things wrong, and so much of their equipment and so many bits and pieces of how the Wehrmacht operated. The more you read about it, the more you think, well, hang on, they're good at this bit, but my goodness me, they miss the big picture or whatever. So.
0: Yes, I mean, there's been a, 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 a systematic um, misrepresentation of... Uh, not Not m- merely the quality of British and German tanks, but uh, British and German armed services in general, indeed the British and German economies mm-hmm. uh, so it used to be routinely uh, implied at the very least that uh, that Britain was uh, less uh, less efficient mm-hmm. uh, in the 1930s or during the second World War in terms of manufacturing production or the economy um, uh, economy as a whole. simply not the case, mm-hmm. and people at the time in Britain um, thought that britain would would essentially Uh, conquer um, or be victorious in the the Second World War precisely because Britain had a more efficient economy than did Germany Mm -hmm. and they were right
1: at the same time, when we're talking about Britain at the beginning of the war, there are only quite limited ways in which they could actually, as as you would say, take the war to the Germans, and one of these obviously developed into the uh, strategic bombing campaign, which you, you go into and you, you you show it up in quite a few different dimensions. What strikes you as important about it, given the amount of debate that's out there at the minute?
0: I think the uh, very important point to make about this is that the st- Strategic bombing wasn't something that was uh, invented in 1940 or 1941, as far as the British were concerned. It was central to air force policy right through the interwar years, and in the Mm -hmm. 1930s, Britain was essentially building a bomber force, not a not a fighter force. Mm -hmm. Um, And the British were bombing uh, uh, Germany um, before the Battle of Britain, let alone the Mm -hmm. let alone the Blitz. And they didn't do it very effectively. Um, so So the remarkable. Uh, situation arose where British bombs were doing very little damage to Germany, and yet the British uh, continued to invest in, uh, in in the idea of strategic bombing mm-hmm. and Of course by the end of the year of the war um, uh, britain was with well, the united states air force was was able to cause enormous damage to to the german infrastructure now whether that was a rational thing to do is, is another matter, and there 's been uh, a, Course, a lot of writing on this topic. It's uh, it's um, the most analysed machine uh, ever, I think. Mm-hmm. It's still rather difficult to draw draw any any uh, um, uh, straight conclusions. I was going story. to press
1: you on that. Where where <laughs> in your view does the balance lie?
0: I think uh, I, I tend to think the bombing is m- more effective certainly than I used to believe it uh, it it, uh, it it was. But uh, I do think we need to take seriously the idea that resources. Uh, might have been better deployed in the army or in the or, or in the navy as many people maintained during the war itself but th- that it caused uh, uh, immense j- damage to german infrastructure and to particular german industries uh, there is no doubt
1: and deployment of german resources military resources
0: uh yes um and and uh, uh, and raw materials which are also uh, essential to the war for the deployment of raw materials
1: moving on uh, because we are talking about uh uh you know equipment such as tanks and and aircraft um you call it a, a war for experts uh and there's this fantastic figure that you come up with halfway through the book and it's that um in the first year of the war 1939 or the end of the the outbreak of war uh, the Admiralty was receiving around a thousand letters a day from backyard tinkerers and you know men in sheds, basically uh, coming up with ideas for for you know the gadget that was going to win the war for them. Uh, this whole attraction to to you know gadgets tinkering with things, making new ways of of uh, waging war runs all the way through the book
0: it does, but I also want to insist on. Uh, The organized way in which the British government, the British armed services have been developing weapons uh, uh, for for, for many decades. So one mustn't get the idea that what characterized the British war effort was uh, was, uh, heroic tinkerers Mm -hmm. uh, and mad scientists of one sort or another. We had bureaucracies in great arms industries developing uh, Mm -hmm. all all sorts of uh, uh, methods of of waging waging modern war. But... um, Having said that, uh, the British uh, Prime Minister from uh, May 1940, Winston Churchill, was a great enthusiast for for gadgets, mm-hmm. uh, for, for for mines that would f- that would float down the Rhine, uh, for rockets, anti aircraft rockets, um, for um, uh, all sorts of anti tank uh, devices that were invented by uh, people that he was uh, he was friendly with, um, and he indeed invented. A gigantic uh, um, trench-cutting machine that he thought would uh, would allow the British and French to break through uh, in northern France. Um. A machine that was rendered redundant essentially by, by the by the fall of France in May nineteen May nineteen forty, but Churchill did did uh, did believe in, in in gadgets. He was regarded later as a figure from the eighteenth century, but uh, in fact he was very much a figure of the of the twentieth century. In fact, you might even say from the twenty first century, given his his inclinations when it came to military military machinery.
1: Two great names popped up when we were talking about inventors and, you know, people, as you say, might have been working within a bureaucracy as opposed to in their, in, in, as opposed to in their garden shed. But uh, Frank Whittle and Barnes Wallace are two names that I remember from from when I was a little boy growing up.
0: Absolutely. These, are, these were two very, very famous uh, uh, figures. Uh, One, the inventor of a bouncing bomb, um, the subject of uh, one of the most famous British war films of all time, The Dam Busters. And Frank Whittle, one of the inventors of the the jet engine. Um, Now, as it happens, um, neither of their uh, wartime inventions had uh, any great impact on the war uh, itself. And yet they are... uh, um, they're, they are at the center of any account we might have of uh, British science and technology in the in the Second world War and in fact um, other famous British inventions of the war like the mulberry harbour or the pipeline mm. under the ocean of Pluto were in fact much less important than uh, we've been led to believe by by the propaganda of the time indeed
1: but sorry propaganda has it has a purpose beyond the actual functioning of of whatever it is so uh surely there was a great value in in being able to point to these remarkable things which after all when you're looking at something like mulberry harbour it actually provides pretty good pictures. Yeah. Know, oh, so, absolutely. So send at home, everyone yes. gets... Uh, um, get, get,
0: get, pictures uh, Pictures are critical, um, and the Pluto pipeline's been laid, provided again, some very good pictures. In fact, at the end of the war, um, the British government uh, built a whole model of the Normandy beaches of the Marbury Harbours and took this around Europe, including Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. uh, to show great contributions the British had made to the, to the, to the liberation of the, of the continent. So yes, you're absolutely right. Um, propaganda was uh, was very important and and uh, machinery of all sorts was was indeed very important in propaganda
1: this I suppose can bring us back to where we started off uh, talking about this this post-war narrative of of Britain standing alone and and basically being propped up by other great powers long after its real great powerhood had started disappearing and yet what we're talking about now is, is, a, is a country that seems to be able to organize itself, to be able to, you know, have uh, organized output, come up with inventions and really put its mind to a task and, and complete the task. And yet it seemed, you know, when I was growing up, you look back at the 70s uh, and beforehand and it looked as though Britain's industrial heart had already started declining, that it was, it was no longer a first rate nation. How did we get from from the one to the other?
0: Well, um, in the late nineteen fifties, um, in the nineteen sixties, and again in the uh, uh, in, in the nineteen eighties, we got a very great emphasis on the British decline. Um, the story of Britain in the twentieth century, since the eighteen seventies, was a story of uh, of decline, mm-hmm. and. And historians and commentators looked for the the, the origin of that uh, that decline and they found it in, in, in attitudes to industry that they, they thought were inappropriate in a lack of concern for engineering. Um, and uh, and uh, and and science uh, a lack of a strong state to intervene in, in industry to to uh, to modernise it, and they essentially created a, a huge pile of instances of, of British weakness such that we all ended up believing that uh, British industry was um, much much worse than German industry in 1939 or 1945, let alone uh, 1960 or or 1970. Um, a story um, was. Um, uh, there to be challenged, and I was one of those people who, who challenged it from the late 1980s uh, uh, onwards. I mean, Britain was a, a richer country um, per capita than Germany into the into the 1960s, for example. Uh, it's, the, it's the richest uh, big country in, in Europe until into the into the into the 19 into the 1960s, mm-hmm. and um, uh, that's a fundamental importance to its uh, to its history.
1: But of course. Compared to the German economic miracle, as it then became, uh, and you know the, the relentless rise of of the, of the United States, uh, it did actually look as though it was in relative decline. Oh yes, and it was I think certainly that, that relative, probably fed into it.
0: That's right. I mean, there, there certainly has been a, a most massive relative decline, um, and what happened was that people uh, uh, um, confused the question of relative decline with that of absolute decline. I mean, and and, uh, in any case, attributed relative decline to British failings. But the reason that essentially Britain declined relatively was that other countries started uh, doing better. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, British relative decline is something that's done by 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 foreigners, not by not by Brits. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, you know, once one realizes that, when one um, begins to think in new ways about Britain, I'm I'm not saying the British industry did as well as it could, or um, or anything of of the, of the sort i 'm saying that the the very particular stories that were told about about British weakness have um, often um, not much basis in, in serious comparative evidence
1: is part of this this narrative that we picked up over the years because of the way that Britain actually fought the war uh, for instance it it did tend to pick and choose it, it, its way of fighting it, it dealt with strategic bombing Bombing Command. It diverted a lot of resources into engaging the Axis in the Mediterranean, which, of course, was viewed by many, including the uh, the Americans and the Soviets as a bit of a sideshow. And when it did actually fight, for instance, in in Germany, northern France, Belgium, etc., it did it in a way that certainly would have been foreign to the Soviet troops in terms of, you know, just trying to it fought as a democracy, really, you know, it, it preserved manpower it didn't just throw lives at, at the problem.
0: Oh, that's right. British casualties were were relatively light um, compared to the other belligerents uh, apart from the United States and certainly compared to the the Great War. Uh, So, yes, um, I think the way to put it is that Britain didn't just fight a democratic war. It fought a a rich person's war. Uh, It it could afford not to waste Mm -hmm. uh, lives. Um, It could afford to waste uh, raw materials. It could uh, afford to waste uh, tanks and airplanes. Uh, and I, I think um, that was not well understood in, uh, in 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 Britain. Now it's important to remember that that, uh, the, that during the war itself, Britain suffered the most rapid relative decline uh, it has ever 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 suffered. So it was a really great superpower in 1940 41. Um, it was clearly in the second rank by 1944 45. That's mm-hmm. an, that's an astonishing. Turnaround. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not anything to do with Britain. It's, it's essentially to do with the phenomenal rise of American power and uh, Soviet in, power, and Soviet power in in a very few years. Mm-hmm. Um, but the effects were were, were were dramatic. Now, at the time, um, the the image of of how the war was being being fought was a very internationalist one. So, from January 1942, uh, it was the United Nations that were fighting uh, mm-hmm. the war against the uh, against the Axis. Um, there was an extraordinary amount of collaboration between the between the powers uh, joint military commands uh, 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 joint boards for allocating uh, shipping and raw materials and all this all this kind of thing. It was truly was an internationalist uh, um, internationalist war ideologically and in and mm-hmm. in and in practice um, but at the end of the uh, of, of the war um, uh, uh, britain does in a way find itself more alone than it had been at any time during uh, the war the americans cut off uh, uh, lend lease britain now has to export in order to 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 to, to, mm-hmm. to import and a lot of government propaganda stresses the point uh, that that, uh, that that britain is a national economy that has to export in order to in order to import and the stories of britain being alone uh, in 1940 and, and 1941, really start getting a serious purchase. I mean, people weren't saying that mm-hmm. in 1940, 41. Uh, they were saying it uh, in, in 1945 and uh, and uh, and thereafter. Alone, that construction of Britain as 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 national and alone, and the war effort as a as a national phenomenon, as opposed to an internationalist phenomenon, um, uh, it is very striking from from that period onwards
1: how did how did all of this uh, set the tone for post-war britain uh, both the the way that industry was organized for instance and and also you know this this pattern of rel- relative decline that, that really as you say it was pretty inescapable by the end of the second world, world war despite the s- still absolute relatively high level of uh, of uh, british income
0: yes absolutely but but it's important to remember that in the in the late 1940s um, Britain was a massive exporter mm-hmm. um uh its most important competitors uh Japan and Germany uh were out of action mm-hmm. um it it is a, a despite all the ra- the rationing which continues at uh, at wartime uh uh levels it's a, it's a relatively wealthy country um so it's uh, the the process of, 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 of relative decline in a way starts uh, not immediately after the war but but somewhat somewhat later as as uh, other countries um, reconstruct uh, themselves. But yes, it is it is uh, it is it is um, it is a fast process of of, uh, of, of relative decline. But um, I I think one shouldn't exaggerate the the uh, the, the the extent. To which it, uh, it, it, it it weakened britain i mean it 's extraordinary to to note that in the 1950s Britain still had a very very powerful armed services at, uh, at, uh, at world uh, at world level you know Britain was building a hydrogen bomb of, uh, 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 designing and building a hydrogen bomb of its of its own it it uh, was building uh, uh, intercontinental missiles all this all this all this sort of thing by the '60s however, a lot of those um, those ambitions are 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 gone, and Britain does does pull out of of of, of, a, of a of a major uh, world power uh, world power role.
1: Mm. I just wanted to to step back a bit because there was one other thing in the book that I was particularly interested to ask you about, and that was. Um, before the war, you obviously, especially with Britain in the centre of it as this world island, you you had this enormous system of of trade, of consumption, production, supply, demand, that meant that uh, you know you you could be uh, you know wearing a, a, a jumper with the wool made in in New Zealand, eating some beef from uh, Argentina, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this enormous system of world trade, uh, as we know now, um, in our own in our own circumstances can be enormously fragile and obviously the second world war disrupted this and it demanded that certain routes etc were were reconfigured and uh, this is where it starts having an impact upon the economies of those countries drawn into or, or shut out of these trade routes and this is when you start bringing in things like the bengal famine can you can you just shed a bit more light on On that, because I did find that, uh, you know, one of those areas that we need a little bit bit of torchlight in to understand.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Britain was the world's biggest customer. Mm -hmm. Uh, That gave it enormous power in in, in world world trade. Um, And during the war, people were effectively uh, forced to continue to sell to Britain, Mm -hmm. uh, but for no immediate return. So Argentina had to carry on sending beef over. But uh, wasn't getting uh, exports it wasn't getting um, uh, cloth from from, from Lancashire in return or, or new railway engines or, what, or whatever it, whatever it, uh, whatever it might be now other countries were way less fortunate in the Britain for example stopped importing bananas so banana producers um, uh, were unable to, 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 to live in the way that they had uh, had before in other in other parts of the world uh, like like Bengal. Um, the, 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 the the British were not prepared to release shipping in order to increase the supply of uh, of food uh, during the during the famine, and um, uh, because Britain controlled uh, uh, the seas, the uh, uh, local people had no no um, no way of getting uh, any any more any more food. So so Britain is a great power with a great capacity to control a lot of aspects of the of the of the world, and that's that's something I want to help bring back into. Our, our narratives of, of Britain. Um, Britain is, is seen as kind of weak and put upon, when in fact it, it had the, the, the power to shape uh, the destinies of millions of people around, around the world. But I, I, one shouldn't overemphasise that um, the world island... Um, uh, uh, image in one important respect, and there 's a tradition of, of thinking which is very um, uh, powerful It says that, that Britain has looked to the, to the world economy and particularly to uh, to empire as an alternative to engagement with europe. That is mm-hmm. a very very common explanation of britain 's supposed reluctance to join the common market and uh, and so on. I think this is uh, uh, misleading in, 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 in many important ways um, for example uh, in the in the in the 1930s uh british trade with 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 uh, with europe was massive i mean more important than trade with um with um, the empire for mm. uh, much of the empire for 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 example I mean, britain was dependent on on europe for hugely important raw materials uh, timber iron ore and, uh, and, uh, and 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 such like it's also reliant on on europe for um a lot of food i mean bacon and eggs uh, uh, the majority of bacon and eggs consumed in Britain in the 1930s uh, came from uh, the Netherlands and from Denmark. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the European dimension of British trade is, is hugely uh, hugely important and hugely, um, hugely underrated.
1: Just as we've uh, emphasised how reality was often slightly different to the narratives that then played out after the war in so many areas, whether we're talking about British tanks or, or, or whatever. Um, do you think that the, that the way that Britain sees the world now and certainly interacts with Europe or, or sometimes fails to interact with Europe can also be traced back to some of the narratives that come out of the Second World War?
0: I think not narratives that come out of the, of the war itself, actually, the narratives mm-hmm. that come out of the, the, the post-war period, mm-hmm. because during the war itself, there was an extraordinary stress um, on, um, on Britain as a European power, Britain uh, in alliance with governments in exile, uh, uh, ridding uh, Europe of the usurping uh, Nazis, so it's, 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 it's Britain is not uh, uh, somewhere outside uh, Europe. It's absolutely part of part mm-hmm. of uh, 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 Europe. I mean, Czech and Polish pilots and uh, free French forces are celebrated all through the war in uh, in in in, uh, in in Britain. So uh, I, I dispute the the idea that Britain was deeply nationalist uh, uh, during the war. I think it was indeed peculiarly uh, internationalist uh, during the war.
1: And now do you think that uh do you think that people are picking up on the on the wrong idea? Like
0: I think that? so. And I think for example we have this idea that that Britain and France are hereditary enemies. Mm-hmm. You know what an absurdity. Uh, in two world wars, Britain and France uh, uh, started off uh, uh, in, uh, in, in alliance. And in both world wars, they ended up in, in alliance, fighting against uh, against Germany. Um, and Britain and France are, are, have been natural allies, not actual natural enemies in the, in the 20th century.
1: But there's also this idea that, that we've just picked up on several times throughout the conversation about the way that Britain has always, as well as conceded, Looking to Europe, but they also are perhaps much more of a, a global economy and, and have been for well over hundred years. In a way that many other European countries haven't been, they have. The, it's a very, very different heritage.
0: That is certainly right. That is that is that is certainly right. Um, and and it's very important to stress that um, that that Britain looks to, to to a global economy, not 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 to its empire. And of course, the French have had a major uh, 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 empire not only in Africa mm-hmm. but in but in but in Asia. Um, so the, the imperial uh, experiences aren 't that different but the the, the relation to the, the global economy has been very different. I mean Britain has been much more exposed to the global economy than than has uh, France over the, over the 20th century so yes that that global orientation is uh, of, of, of britain's is, is, is indeed important but that 's not to say that um, uh, that global orientation has been, has been unchanging. There have been moments when the British economy has been thoroughly nationalized. Uh, take the case of British agriculture. Um, one might have thought, given the tradition of, of getting food from from abroad, that Britain would continue after the war to, to do that. But in fact, massive efforts are made uh, to make Britain self-sufficient in food. And indeed, um, uh, by the 1980s, that's the case. So uh, in, in, in relation to food production, um, uh, Britain becomes much more like but it becomes almost identical to, the, to, 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 to continental continental Europe, which it certainly had not been um, before uh, before the Second World War, and indeed immediately after it.
1: One other question on this theme. Do you think that the British, uniquely or, or maybe uh, more so than most other nations, are, are happy with the feeling of, of a kind of genteel decline? Other, other countries worry about it, we just kind of accept it and almost glory in it.
0: Um, I don't. I don't think that's true. I think um, if one looks at uh, British politics over the last uh, forty years, um, uh, um, they, there's been a dramatic change, and uh, part of that change was, was driven by the idea that um, that one should stop uh, um, uh, accepting. Uh, the Britain was genteelly declining, and mm-hmm. do something about it. I mean, I don't entirely accept that the, the way that was chosen uh, uh, was 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 the right one, but it, that 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 view that the British decline had to come to an end. Uh, was certainly very influential in, in in Thatcherism and in and in, in, in other politics. So I, I, I don't think that I don't think that was that's true. Britain has been very aggressive in the last mm-hmm. uh, in the last uh, twenty or thirty years in in, in that uh, in that regard. Now to come back to the theme of of um, of Britain versus uh, versus uh, Europe. I mean I think another way it's it's overplayed is that we that we we don't um, uh, think enough uh, of. British history in, in relation to to continental European history, and yet if one looks at the history of socialism, for example, mm-hmm. it's very clear that uh, that the trends uh, across Europe, uh, uh, including Britain, uh, are, are, um, are 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 reasonably are reasonably similar. Mm-hmm. I mean, Britain um, uh, looked at from from, from from Mars or the United States, and uh, looks like a European uh, power in, in all sorts of uh, in all sorts of dimensions. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's a fascinating book, and it, uh, it, it's not just a, a, a book about the, the Second World War and industry or, or anything quite contained like that, because it springs off into all these other areas, and certainly, certainly got my mind thinking about all these other areas. Uh, I, I'm just wondering, what, what are you working on next?
0: Well, I'm not, I'm not sure yet, but uh, um, uh, let's put it this way: I'll be revisiting many of the themes we've discussed today.
1: I look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was David Edgerton, author of Britain's War Machine, Weapons, Resources and Experts in the Second World War, with his argument that in 1940 it was actually Britain, as opposed to Nazi Germany, that really understood what it took to win a modern war. This is Nicholas Walton from New Books in European Studies, wishing you a good day from here in London.